Hello and welcome to episode 66 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel, editorial assistant at the Saturday Paper, and I'm joined by Anders Furs, editor of the Daily Review. Hi, Andy. Hello. And co-curator of Melbourne Cinematheque and Swinburne University lecturer, Eloise Ross. Hello, Eloise. Hey, Andy. In our latest look at what's happening on Melbourne's cinema screens, we'll be reviewing Lorene Scafaria's Hustlers, opening the Cultural Capital film diary, and sharing our top three spins on Shakespeare. But first, the film that's inspiring that list, David Michaud's The King. A new chapter of my life has begun. Already I can feel the weight of this crown I wear. I've been forced to rely upon the counsel of men whose loyalty I question every waking moment. I need men around me I can trust. I'm here because you are my friend. King has enough friends. King has only followers and foe. Australian director David Michaud, probably best known for Animal Kingdom and The Rover, follows up his 2017 Netflix film War Machine, another one to add of this uh, in this late uh, career Brad Pitt renaissance, with The King, which is another Netflix production. Based on Shakespeare's Henriad, four plays mostly concerned with King Henry V, the film begins with Ben Mendelsohn as an ageing King Henry IV, overseeing the slow collapse of his reign and possibly his country. Timothée Chalamet plays his son Hal, who is more interested in getting drunk and paying for prostitutes than in maintaining any presence at court. He is friends with Falstaff, played in gruff, larrikin-adjacent mode by Joel Edgerton. But when events conspire to force a crown upon his head, King Henry V heads over to France, where he finds a muddy battle, Lily Rose Depp and Robert Pattinson. The King comes to Netflix on November the 1st, but it's getting a limited release in the Lido, Classic and Cameo cinemas in Melbourne beforehand. Those are also the venues where we'll be able to catch the highly anticipated new Martin Scorsese film, The Irishman, before that gets a Netflix release as well. Andy, you're fresh from seeing this film. What kind of impression did The King leave on you? Well, I thought The King was a very strikingly shot film. I thought uh, there was quite a few bit to commend it. Um, I, thought, I really loved Nicholas Bertel's score. I loved a lot of the natural light that Alan Akapur used in the cinematography was great. The acting was all pretty strong, but overall I came away just going, why? I'm not really sure why this film exists, why Australian male directors seem so hell-bent on rebooting Shakespeare every couple of years. I think almost all of them have had to go at some point in some sort of fashion. Um, I mean, the performances are good. There's a lot to really like about it as well, but it's, I felt it was too long, a bit turgid, and... There was some interesting choices made, but I wasn't quite sure there was much depth to those choices. No, like I... Like the yeah. famous speech at Agincourt. Oh, that was hilarious, really? <laughs> I thought. You know, it was very rousing. But, you know, that, like, what was the quote? I, England, fight, England, fight for that space. The space fight for between that sp- you, I just yeah. thought that was hilarious. Well, yeah. Uh, you, you know, it was kind of, like, quite strikingly filmed, as yeah, you say, but, Andy. I mean, like, much of this. But, but it was just so weird. Like, suddenly he shouts. Suddenly he becomes, seems to become a different character for about 45 seconds. It was very... It was, yeah, it was ex- a very odd film. You know, I quite, I had quite a good time watching it, but thinking afterwards, maybe I came off with the same sort of response as you, Andy. Like, you know, why? What is this doing? You know, Michaud and um, Edgerton have written the screenplay. They've taken this Henry ad um, play-like series and kind of, you know, taken out a few characters and essentially done their own thing with it. But the whole kind of journey of Prince Hell into Henry V mm, mm. is what is so fascinating about that set of plays. And it is 
nowhere to be seen in this film. I just found everything was kind of just so quick and didn't have enough dramatic weight to like deserve essentially all of these like character elements of character growth. The switch at the beginning where, you know, he's um, off getting drunk and then, you know, immediately has this kind of like, you know, sense of moral obligation overcome him or is it revenge on his father? I'm not sure where he comes in and decides to take the crown in fact, and then immediately decides. And it's even unclear whether he decides to kind of fight um, Percy, out of you know because he wants to save his brother or because he does it out of a sense of like you know masculine kind of ownership of his role it's not really clear why he's doing that he resists war on a larger scale and then immediately can kind of just say like yes I'm doing this like let's fight a war with there's nothing in Chalamet's acting or the script really that suggests that he would do that in you know in his sense of character look i agree the i just found it mostly a little bit dull and um i mean i've written in my i've half written my daily review review and uh i've said that i found it a mostly po-faced exercise in faux profound grandiosity um and i think that's kind of true like the the timing is the temporal, the pacing of the films all over the place. Like this Battle of Alencor is like very strikingly shot, uh, but it lasts all of what ten minutes maybe, and then it's sort of on to the next thing and on to the next thing. I thought Chalamet's performance was a bit. I I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily say one note, but he didn't seem to ever be enjoying himself, even when he was in this pre sort of uh, responsibility mode where he's out there, you know, drinking and whoring it up. I he seemed very stressed by other things, um, which was the mode he maintained throughout the whole film. I thought the what Edgerton um, and company have done in the screenplay in terms of Falstaff's character, I found very like strange and like bringing him along to the battle and turning him into this sort of you know there's none of that betrayal I guess that's in the original play at all yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know he comes yeah. along as a special advisor to King Henry whereas in the original he King Henry you know famously shuns him when he gets his new position um so that's all stripped out of it completely and then you've got Robert Pattinson showing up from another movie completely um and we can talk about him uh later as well but overall I just found like it was striving for meaning and not really bringing up much Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I used the term po-faced in my descript- in my notes as well. Uh-huh. Just going, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. where's the humour? I mean, Michaud is not really serious. known for humour in any of his productions. There were two things that I found maybe like slightly humorous about this film. One is when Ben Mendelsohn, who is um, Henry the Fourth in the beginning sequence, he died very quickly as well. I think that they were just like, oh, we've got to include him because he's essential to Hell's realization, but. It really did not work. I thought he needed to be around for a bit longer. You know, maybe this needed to be a five-hour film or something. Yeah, or a series maybe. Yeah. You know, essentially if you're going to try and do two plays that maybe include references to more, not that they are doing the plays, but, you know, Mm. I mean they kind of are. Yeah. Then, you know, you've got to, yeah, shift something around. Anyway, he seemed like he didn't really think – this was a good idea to be doing any of this. <laughs> this is a bit where um, Hotspur says, 
you know, he's kind of mumbling to him some excuse about why not to fight a war or something. And he says, you've got to speak up. I'm old. I've got hair in my ears. <laughs> and he just smirks at that very moment. And I thought, you know, King Henry is not smirking right now. No. This is you. Are you finding it hard <laughs> yeah. to say this line? We've gone because... from zero to one on the Mendo scale, I think. <laughs> this is a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Like, and you know, come on, I've got to turn up on the Star Wars set in a couple exactly. of weeks. Let's get this done. And Falstaff just constantly eating. I was like, are they trying to do some kind of Brad Pitt in o- the Ocean series? Kind of like, <laughs> just like odd character quirk <laughs> type of thing. Yeah, he always had an apple. Always you know, an and apple. I know he was meant to be, you know, kind of like indulging in the royal um, wealth, but... <laughs> Yeah, it was very just off to and me. And even the Falstaff stuff, because he's kind of a comic relief character, although not, I, again, I, there was not much humour to his presence in this film. And I just go back to that sort of weird moment early in the film where we see Falstaff getting drunk at a tavern. Remember there's that slow motion shot of him like mm. dancing around with like some cloth on his head, like laughing. Yeah. It's just bizarre. And it's it's there's no... It, it, it yeah, there's pops no joy, up. There's, there's no joy in it. Yeah, it's just yeah, weird. Yeah. When yeah, I think about yeah, how it's been no represented joy. in yeah. other productions, I'm like, do these like if you anyone saw the Globe when the Globe came to Melbourne, they did a cracking, amazing Henry V, and that was there was so much fun, so much humour and comedy in that, and it seems like it's just been extracted for this. But I did really, really like um, Tom Glyn Carney's performance as Hotspur. I thought he was fantastic. I would have not have minded him hanging around a bit longer. People might have seen him in Dunkirk as well. He was great in that too. Um, the, so the Agincourt battle is is kind of like the centerpiece, I suppose, of the film. Like, Look, I have to say, I love that. I mm. love a good medieval battle scene, and yes. it's been far too long since I've seen one. No, I have not ever watched Game of Thrones, but I do love them, and I did enjoy going to the cinema to see this one. I mean, it was oddly short. You're yeah. right. I, it was extremely well choreographed. I thought. You know, there was no getting lost. There was none yeah, of this. Yeah. You know, he wasn't disorienting the spectator in the middle of this mud where, in fact, it would have made sense if people were disoriented because essentially, you know, I was like, how do you know if you're killing an Englishman yeah, or a Frenchman? Everyone's yeah. covered in A, mud and B, armour. I thought it was really in- enjoyable. I mean, it's the centrepiece of the film, but then there's this coda sequence that's maybe another 45 minutes. Mm, yeah. No, the whole battle reminded me of some primary school soccer games I'd played in early Saturday mornings <laughs> in very muddy fields. Yeah, there was some really great physicality to it, particularly because it ties in with the whole strategy of, mm. like, not having armour and then coming down the flanks and yeah, this sort of stuff. Totally. That was really key, and I thought that worked really, really well. I am going to, because I promised Anders that I would, I'm going to quote Harold Bloom right now. <laughs> yes, Eloise, thank you. Because <laughs> I, who has just recently died, too much press. I um, was an obsessive Shakespeare fan as a teenager and have lots of books on him. Anyway, I have this book. It's called Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human by Harold Bloom. (laughs) This 800-page assessment of all of his plays. The Invention of the Human. Wow. (laughs) Anyway, he says this fascinating thing about Falstaff. Time annihilates other Shakespearean protagonists, but not Falstaff, who dies for love. Critics have insisted that this love is grotesque but they are grotesque. He, greatest of all fictive wits, dies the death of a rejected father substitute and also of a dishonoured mentor. That is the thing that's focused on in this film. Minus the wit. Minus, yeah. minus the wit, yeah, exactly. But He's doesn't just... he die the death of a very honoured mentor? Yes, that's true. You know, that's that complexity is not there at all. No, mm. but you know, it's the, his idea. It, but in it's this film. yeah, it's like they've taken that romantic idea of Falstaff. Yeah, that's all they've gone for. You know, he's a, a fantastic character without actually understanding why. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, I just feel like there was so much there they didn't go into. Like, there's no wedding. There's no. We never find out what what happens to in in Wales or in the battle mm. scenes where his brother it dies. Ended there's no grieving for him. Extraordinarily abruptly. Yeah. The final bit, essentially, with those two final discussions, essentially. But there's this kind of presentation of some great moral decision that that King Henry has to make as though he was going to realise that in fact, you know, like this film is presenting him with the dilemma of like, are you a man who loves peace or can you be tricked into becoming a brutal fiend essentially and doing the bidding of others because someone has, you know, manipulated you behind the scenes. It's like it presents that as a question, but I never got the sense that Chalamet, not whether he understood it, but that they were allowing this particular character to actually realise that problem. It ended without allowing him space to declare what his future intentions were. It was just very odd to me. I was like, this is a huge moment. I want to feel something and I felt nothing at all. Much like another film that's very recently been released that's taking up a lot of cinema space at the moment, Joker, there's a lot of interesting ideas raised and nothing is really explored. Right. Like, I mean, most of these questions are raised are answered by another shot of Chalamet's amazing eyes. Yes. Which is very nice to look at, but there's not really much going on. You know, I feel like it's almost like a guy who's like doesn't know what to do and just Googles for answers. And instead he has all these people around him with their own agendas and he ends up being... I mean, that's what's so interesting about being a king. Like, you know, and a lot, there are a lot of Shakespeare plays that kind of explore that kind of thing, mm. right? You know, there are so many interesting ways to do that. This one I just felt, yeah, like... Missed opportunities? Yeah, yeah, you know, like, oh, is he a good king? Is he someone who just resists violence to, at, at all costs? That's kind of what it says at him in the end, like he's blameless. I just wanted more from it. Yeah, I agree. And then we got doses of more, I think, in the form of Robert Pattinson's character. Who was glorious. Um, I loved him. Was just, that was, I was yes. like, finally <laughs> yeah, something same. that's alive yeah. in the film. Yeah. And it's an hour and 40 minutes into it. Yeah, and then up, we like, don't very get very much of it. And then, no, no, a couple of things. But I feel like he was just wandered in from a Phoenix film clip or something like that. He was just like... He was very... He was on another some planet completely. nice indie vibes. Yeah, yeah, he's here. Um, but where... I think um, you've made me think, yeah, where's our peak TV Shakespeare adaptation? Where? Why is there no... Uh, Long Netflix miniseries. Yeah, BBC, pick up the game. Yeah, come on, come on. Maybe they're, they're probably We've done Downton. I don't even know about it. But. Yeah, well, yeah. But yeah, I've, the time is ripe. Mm, yes, you heard it here first. So look, I don't even think I would recommend it to Chalamet Completus. Like, <laughs> or Pattinson Completus. <laughs> or Pattinson. I'm, st- I'm, I'll be surprised if many people have the patience for it on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, if you're curious, November first. Yes. Which brings us to this month's Cultural Capital Film Diary. Running from October 23rd until November 21st is the Jewish International Film Festival. Highlights include opening night film Ask Dr. Ruth, the Sundance Film Festival hit about pioneering sexual therapist Dr. Ruth Weistheimer, the documentary Curtis about Casablanca director Michael Curtis, and Marianne Leonard about the relationship between Marianne Ilhan and singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen. Closing night film is described by the Jewish International Film Festival as one of the strongest films we have ever presented. And that film is Jojo Rabbit, Taika Waititi's Toronto International Film Festival Audience Award winner, which should be worth checking out. You can find out more at jiff.com.au. 
Over at Cinema Nova, the environmental film festival runs from October 24 to 29. There you can see Maxima, a film about a battle between an illiterate Peruvian grandmother fighting to protect her land and the world's largest gold producer. Werner Herzog's excellent Encounters at the End of the World, Cynthia Wade and Sasha Friedlander's Grit, and Anik Gelsen's Mahai Nui, In the Heart of Ocean, My Country Lies. Find out more at eff.org.au. The British Film Festival runs at Palace Cinemas from October 29 until November 24. Highlights include Ken Loach's Sorry We Missed You, Armando Iannucci's The Personal History of David Copperfield, starring Tilda Swinton, Dev Patel, Ben Whishaw and Hugh Laurie, 4K restorations of Don't Look Now and Kind Hearts and Coronets, before closing night sees Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren in Bill Condon's thriller The Good Liar. I just saw a trailer for that today and I, yeah, that looks cool. It looks like it was custom made for something like the British Film Festival. Yes, well, 100%, yeah. <laughs> Um, you can find out more at BritishFilmFestival.com.au. One noteworthy event at the British Film Festival is a screening of the comedy Mrs. Lowry and Son, which features a post-screening Q&A with its star, Timothy Spall, who is a guest of the festival. Cool, he's coming over. Yeah, <laughs> I've already tried to get him on the pod. I'll see how that goes. Um, that's happening at um, the Astor Theatre. Also at the Astor Theatre is Todd Phillips' Joker, which is screening sporadically until October 29. Other screenings include a double bill of The Nightingale and Suspiria, 2018 version, also on the 29th. The documentary Susie Q with a special appearance by its subject Susie Quattro on November 3rd and a season of Isabella Gianni films including Queen Margot and Possession. Find out more at astartheatre.net.au. Cinematech, Ellen? Cinematech is about to start a three-week Louise Brooks season combo of, well, mostly silent and a few scattered sound films. Um, Very exciting. There's quite a bit of rare stuff as part of this three-week program, so... We're excited. And afterwards, a two-week Ivan Sen retrospective featuring some of his cinema work, a little bit of TV stuff that he's done, um, and a few short films as well. So that's pretty special. These Wall Street guys. You see what they did to this country? They stole from everybody. Hardworking people lost everything. And not one of these douchebags went to jail. The game is rigged, and it does not reward people who play by the rules. It's like robbing a bank, except you get the keys. Are you in? I got a These are my coworkers. Jobs, please. What if somebody calls the cops? And says what? I spent $5,000 at a strip club, send help. Damn. We're a family now. Damn. A family with money. Hustlers is based on a New York magazine story about a group of Manhattan strippers who concocted a plan to scam the rich in order to oversee an ostensibly more fair distribution of wealth. With Hustlers, Lorreen Scafaria is clearly having a great time with this particular version of period glamour. This particular period starts in the mid-2000s when new kid on the block Destiny, played by Constance Wu, is taken under the wing of the Wall Street strip club neighbourhood queen Ramona, played by an iridescent, unbeatable Jennifer Lopez. The film gathers such terrific momentum in this particular world that when the global financial crisis crashes through their community and all but decimates the customer base of the strip club, it isn't just their livelihood that we mourn for. The film changes gear and it did so, I felt, far too early in its runtime. Nevertheless, even on a different track, Hustlers is still good fun. And what is key to that is the chemistry between, and Scafaria's dedication to, Destiny and Ramona as friends. The remainder of the film consists of the solid path of their friendship, the ups and downs of their Robin Hood-like escapades, 
and showing some insight into the li- their lives as women underappreciated by their industry and in some ways their society. It is also seemingly concerned with analysing and critiquing an unfair division of wealth and social inequity on a larger scale. But to me, it doesn't quite hit that. Where I celebrate this film is in its other stuff, in the emotions of its characters, of its director and in its stylistic flair. And, of course, in J-Lo's magnificent hair. <laughs> Andy, mm. what do you think? For the most part, I, was, I kind of went along with Hustlers. I thought it was a really striking film. I thought the I loved seeing these relationships unfold and the connections between the different characters. The way that there was this total absence of lasciviousness, like in the way that the camera moved, the attention that it was focused on, there was so much about faces and hair and expressions and warmth. But it's still, so it was a really the fun ride. I really liked the pacing of it. It had this slightly epic quality to it where it was almost felt like it was a bit like a Goodfellas, but set in a different world. Yes. A slightly different time. Like it wasn't afraid to stretch things out. Um, But at the end, I was kind of like, hang on, this, yeah, I think I might have been on the same page as you. I'm not quite sure why Ramona took Destiny under her wing to begin with when there's so many other women, you know, in the club that were, you know, probably not as experienced as her. Um, And then there were certain moments where she was, described as being brilliant at what she did and i was a little confused as to j-lo j-lo was describing destiny like in a supportive way destiny was brilliant yeah and i was like hang on was she i don't remember seeing her be brilliant clearly they came up with this interesting idea which it wasn't even there an original one i think they were talking about how other people had done a similar thing but then they were kind of getting the right dose of um, ketamine versus mdma and this sort of stuff and so i suppose you know that was good (laughs) but then there wasn't so there was probably a lot of a brilliant stuff but i didn't see it so these conversations with these men that they have all these men are quite successful in wall street believe it and a lot of that has to do with bullshitting people and being able to be a good con artist so being able to read people well which is i think qualified to be good on in that sort of world but when it comes here everybody's kind of clueless and helpless and just totally taken advantage of and i get you know how that obviously happened because this is a real story but i didn't really see it in the film i would have liked to have seen more of this sort of these the, the, the skills that these women must have had more to be able to do skills to be and successful as they were. behind it yeah we saw yes. a lot of the surface stuff yeah, like we were, suppo- you know, like when, you know, when you're watching a gangsters movie, like a Goodfellas type of thing, right? People can, they can make gestures about, you know, their hits and the money laundering or whatever. And you just accept that the general public kind of has a vague idea of what's going on. Yeah. But yeah, with this like whole, you know, drug concoction type well, of thing. Well, I, I want to see more conversations. That, so. Yeah, because mm. these men all sit in the same seat at the bar. It's the same thing. There's a brilliant scene using Scott Walker's song Next, which I thought was my favorite <laughs> bit of the entire movie. Um, that was a fantastic sequence. Mm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's, there was a lot of style and a lot of great outfits, a lot of great fun. Um, but, yeah, I felt it could have, it thought it was a bit meatier than it was, I think. Mm. But also the economy of this set, of the, like the whole film thing was shot in eight weeks in March earlier this year, which is kind of incredible to think that this film, a film this long and this epic and this, with this many different locations was shot that quickly. Like, obviously such skill. Particularly in editing. Um, Kayla Empter's editing I thought was fantastic. Real yeah, stand-out. yeah, yeah, yeah. Anders. Interesting. Yeah, I, look, I thought for the most part it was an interesting story that was well told. Um, I think now that you mention this, Andy, I'm, I'm with you uh, to an extent that it could perhaps have, have delved deeper into those, that sort of um, background stuff. Um, but, you know, as a whole, it's a very interesting, I guess, metaphor for America, you know, as J-Lo says quite uh, explicitly at the end of the film, 
uh, the whole country is a strip club. Some people have money and everyone else is dancing. Um, and, you know, this is sort of like a truism, I guess, that we've been told a thousand times in uh, by popular culture about America. But this was a very sort of fresh take on that, I guess. The dance sequences and the, pop, the use of uh, period-appropriate pop music yeah. was like really well done, really strong, particularly that, and I've read Gia Tolentino wrote a great thing for The New Yorker unpacking the um, the the sequence, which is sort of like the culminate, it's like their last great dance before the global financial crisis sort of ends the party and Usher comes mm. into the club and he's in the film playing himself, which is amazing, in, two, in, in period appropriate 2007 clothing and all of that. And all of the dancers who we've been introduced to, um, so great performances from this supporting cast, of women, yeah, including, yeah. including Lizzo. And Cody uh, B. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Um, all, all of these, they, they all go on stage for like this ginormous sort of party thing. And it was just like really joyful. And anyway, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, I recommend people read this Tolentino thing because she explores, she's, you know, questioning whether this was the last great sort of, you know, unmessy, uncomplicated, the pop music of that era is so optimistic and... An innocent it. time. An innocent time, exactly, exactly. And to think of what on earth happened in the last 12 years, it's, it's quite... It's quite extraordinary. So all of that stuff was really, really interesting. Their relationship, the relationship between those two women, I, I, I was really weird. It was a very bizarre, well, not bizarre, but strange friendship in that it was partly transactional, but also obviously a lot more personal. But yeah. <sighs> There was still that edge of, you know, money. Does it all just come back to money at the end of the day? No, it's more complicated than that. But also, underneath all of that, um, you do have money. And I thought it, it uh, sort of running underneath it all. And I think it explored that in an interesting, not entirely reconciled way, which was all the film's all the better for that, I think. Um, yeah, I, loved I agree. Julia Stiles, too. Yeah, 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 I agree with you. I mean, that, yeah, that thing about the, is their friendship, you know, real and authentic or is it transactional? And the answer is it's both. Yeah. Was kind of, you know, that bit at the end where they, you know, they kind of have a disagreement over what options they both have and they choose different options. And the first response is like, how could you do something different to me? You've spent you know, you spent kind of eight years or whatever doing exactly what I've asked you or like we've been on the same kind of track, you know, and I think that that's partly the like, you, you know, Ramona saying she's so good, yeah, she's so good yeah. at her job, she's so fantastic about Destiny. I think part of that is that Destiny spends the whole time just kind of being a bit of a yes man to Ramona and doing mm. whatever Ramona says. And then there's that like, oh, but I did something else because I have different, you know, needs now and there's a that you can see that there's a resistance to them having wanting to go different ways but also an understanding that they're they both have different needs in their life as well and it's not just about the transactions i just feel like the film maybe needed to spend longer i longer with one thing or the other and that in in attempting to kind of also kind of deconstruct the social system in america or be some kind of broader commentary on that or you know, it's few references to the GFC and how devastating that was that it, it could have inserted those into the script a little yeah. di differently mm -hmm. and focused 
some more on their friendship or some more on what they were doing rather than trying to be a f- story of friendship and also a commentary or you know do what all these men seem to be doing and add half an hour to your runtime. <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. you know really get a little bit deeper yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i would would not have minded that at all I mean, I think it's interesting because a lot of these things I think we're talking about is, comes from because it's being adapted from a piece of journalism. Mm, um, so and I think there are a few things that were changed. Like, you know, I don't think that their friendship was as close um, and that there were a few other elements that were changed about it, obviously. Yeah, because I think part of the problem is probably for the first time I've ever gone, hang on, the male characters weren't very well developed. Um, and in this case, I would have liked to find out a bit more. I would have liked to see these women be amazing at what they obviously are amazing at, which is like the con, the playing, playing them. Well, if, I think if, we, if it was, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm asking for it to be a slightly different tone because at the moment it's quite a feel-good thing where it, it takes all this and there's, it plays it for comedy. Like, you know, we, I think for, uh, there's, there's comedic sequences where the night that Ramona kind of abandons them, that's I mean, kind of played for comedy. That's so true, but I think that's also in the style, the stylistic choice and the storytelling yeah. device, you know, yeah. because they chose it to be told through flashback via Destiny's account. Yeah. You know, it is about her, primarily about her motivation mm. throughout this period and that, and she, Destiny, is not interested in, you know, trying to deconstruct why men do this. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of stated. Men are stupid. Men love sex and money. And so we were able to do all of this. Yeah. 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 And I think that's enough. Well, I think part of the it's a bit undercut because as soon as we start seeing this in flashback, we see the, like the modern day her. She's got a gold necklace and she's got a white suit on and she seems to be in a very nice house. So you're like... I thought we were going to learn why things or worked what's, out. What's happened yeah. in the interim years? But interestingly, the film didn't no. uh, sort of go into that because I was like, "Oh, she's living in a very ritzy mm. suburban house, which is different to where she was before." What has she gone straight? Has she? But the f- exactly, especially like- because you know Ramona is now working in retail, yeah. right? You know, you know, was that then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She and was, so, yeah. if she is, then why is Destiny in this? You know. Nice middle class house. Anyway, um, or did I've, she move into the house that she bought for her mother? Yeah, we don't know. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was just never explained. But the um, uh, it it did have some very clever gestures to you know the stigma around um, working in that kind of a club environment. Um, there were a lot of you know good stuff or interesting uh, conversations, and you know the way other women judged um, Destiny when she was like. Uh, you know, taking her child, you know, rushing her yeah. child into school, stuff like mm. that. I think it was very clever at gesturing towards that kind of broader context stuff um, in a, you know, look, it's not particularly subtle, but it's it, it's still in there and it still um, makes it an interesting film. I agree. And it is, you know, it is the style recently and I am a, a huge fan of fragmented kind of like gestures at yep. particular plot points or character elements or things in a lot of movies or even movies constructed entirely from just fragments of someone's life. And so I do, you know, appreciate embedding those kind of flicks into what is essentially... A mainstream movie. Mm. It is a ma- would you call it a mainstream movie? Yeah, yeah. definitely. I would. J Lo, yeah. Cardi B, Lizzo. Yes. Yeah, cool. And I think it is. You know, I mean, I throw it at Hoyt. Yep. Mm. Right. Like Lorraine Scafaria tweeted yesterday, and I retweeted it from our account. Hustlers has passed 100 million in North America, 125.6 million worldwide, made for 20 million. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this incredible film has done this incredible success. You know, I mean, I'm no box office analyst, but that's probably because it's made for 
um, in quote marks, and about mm. women um, and, you know, maybe middle-aged women, you know, I say less successful women, although, I've, you know, it's not entirely about less successful women because it's about women having great success for a certain mm. period of time. But, you know, this kind of this like element of society that is considered unmarketable has in fact yeah, exactly. proven in the last five years and even longer than that to be very successful. Yeah, well, much like The Farewell, another box office success right. this yeah. year, which I think ticks similar boxes. Yeah, I mean, very diverse cast. Very, and I, all the, our treatment of... The GFC is always very masculine, and I'm yeah, probably yeah. justifiably uh, all the testosterone on Wall Street, blah blah blah. But like we've done that to death, so it's it's great to have. And interestingly, this was produced by Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, who sort of made all of responsible for all of these <laughs> yeah. interesting um, takes on on that period in American history. Um, so I did really appreciate it, and there's obviously an, uh, an audience um, who's out there for for this kind of treatment of of that material too. And it does go back to just, I mean, I don't want to sound like a bloody um, Hollywood script consultant, but the power of good storytelling. <laughs> it's, such, it's a really, like, it, even if you don't watch the film, just read the uh, New York Magazine story. Like, as a piece of journalism, it's a really interesting, really well-written um, piece of uh, journalism that, you know, says a lot about um, the current economic system. I mean, I feel like I've spent the last 20 minutes saying um, kind of negative things about this film, but I really loved and I came out of it wanting to kind of see it again immediately as well. You know, it was such a rush and it's so great to see all of these things happen on screen. And Lorene Scafari is a fantastic director. You know, the editing is actually is so good and it's really well told, right? Like there are things that I want to kind of go back and reanalyze, like maybe I'm being too harsh on it, not giving enough weight to certain elements. Well, one thing we haven't quite mentioned yet is I think the look of once we get inside this environment, it's like it's treat, they're treated really beautifully. And what I really liked was actually the period inappropriate music because there's a lot of classical music that plays while these women are dancing or while there's like lap, private lap dances happening in rooms. And we get Miss You Much by Janet Jackson played a couple of times, which is like a cracking tune from 1987, which sounds like 2019, like it's such a good song and so well made. And it's used so it's such a, like alongside this other you know era appropriate music. But I was surprised by the score. I thought it was really just lush and beautiful and rich and it mm. kind of went away from this more sort of synthetic um, like dance music that would probably be what is playing in those clubs or that DJ who they tip, you know, would be playing. And I, I thought that just elevated the entire story mm. yeah, really nicely. Yeah, that DJ who they tip, I did like the insights into, you know, I knew someone who worked in a Vegas um, buffet hall and like it's mind-blowing the mini economy of these places where everyone's paying off everybody yeah, else right and you're paying off people i mean in his case he had to tip people to get like the better tables to get like it's all this whole system and i did enjoy those little insights everyone's paying everyone else yeah. in that club and as um destiny says or is it i can't remember which character now um says the whole club was making huge amounts of money off their scam. Yeah. Like, it wasn't just a group Keeping of... Keeping the colour of... Yeah, I, I did love that. Yeah. They were yeah. spreading like it Like, they were all very much yeah. involved in this hustle. Yeah, right from the top to the bottom. And you know what I was expecting, but it didn't come, uh, you know, when they have the titles at the end saying, you know, blah, blah, got jailed, blah, blah. I was waiting for the no one was jailed for the global financial <laughs> crisis. <laughs> but, it's, again, as, uh, but it's again. not true. One person was. Oh, were they? There's a subject of the documentary I called Abacus. I stand connected. Well, they were... Yeah, but... Though she's basically, it's basically true. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, no, no. Well, no, Adam McKay. Fake news. Sorry. (laughs) Adam McKay made a movie like partly about it. Anyway, (laughs) yeah, it's a different story. Uh, But yes, that's great. The microeconomy was one of the more fascinating things I found out about this. 
Well, good film. Yeah. Go see it. Yeah, I'd recommend it for sure. It's a widely known fact that the Stratford sisters aren't allowed to date. For every girl who's ever hoped. Daddy, as you know, it's the prom. Every guy who's ever tried. You never give up, do you? Was that a yes? No! And anyone. You're concentrating awfully hard considering it's gym class. Who's ever been taken completely by surprise. You're not as vile as I thought you were. Ten things I hate about you. Which one do you like better? Made it PG-13. And we're going to close out this uh, episode with our top three spins on Shakespeare. Now, these are not straight adaptations because there's so many straight adaptations of Shakespeare that it's just you kind of get lost in the weeds a bit. But I think it's very interesting. When they're not only straight adaptations, we Sorry? should say. They're not only. No, when they're not. That's why spins. Like, it's like, mine kind of are. Or my, one, what, really? Uh, no, but the oh, spin meant... One of mine is an adaptation. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. I thought this was like <laughs> the Henry... I mean, mine kind of, of are, but it was too hard for me. They're not only. Okay, they're not only straight adaptations. <laughs> yes. Because there's so many adaptations in cinema history, like right from the beginning of cinema itself so <laughs> until 2019. There's lots of adaptations. We've got like a mixed... Well, I've got, a, I've got two spins and one quote-unquote straight adaptation. Okay. Sure. <laughs> um, two. Okay, well, we've got a mixture of spins and adaptations. Um, Sorry, Andy. Because they're Sorry, so... Andy. Important in cinema, right? Um, do you want to start with your number three? Uh, yes. So, um, well, I, just to say before I begin, um, just researching this, I was kind of blown away by how many Shakespeare influences there are in so many amazing films. His mm. influence is everywhere. Um, and without Shakespeare, we would have neither 90s teen films nor Julia Stiles' career. Good so, uh, or Kenneth Branagh or Franco Zeffirelli. I mean, there's a, <laughs> yeah. lot, a lot of people have created yeah. It's amazing. Anyway, look, my number three uh, Shakespeare-inspired film is um, Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho, <laughs> which I mention... Uh, with a laugh because we're literally recording this under a ginormous poster of Keanu in River Phoenix. And shout out to a friend of the podcast, Dewey Richards, who in a convoluted series of events accidentally lent me that poster. So <laughs> thank you, Stewie. I'm still keeping good good care of it for you. Um, so yes, it would be remiss of me not to mention this film, particularly because we were just talking about The King. And this is another film that is inspired, that sort of remixes the Henriette, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, it 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 loosely plays with those those plays. So the film follows these two young sex workers played by Reeves and uh, River Phoenix as they go on a surreal journey from Seattle to Portland to Idaho and Rome. Uh, Reeves plays a son of the mayor of Portland, I think, from memory. True. Um, and he's got this sort of secret plan to give up hustling once he turns 21. Phoenix's character, meanwhile, is prone to narcolepsy. He falls asleep a lot during the film and is on a journey to find his mother. Um, I really enjoy this film because it's so weird. It's part sort of City of Night, the landmark 60s book about um, street workers, but it's also part Shakespeare. It's, it's a distinctive combination of influences, and yet they also kind of make sense, um, particularly if you think in terms of the character of Falstaff, who here shows up as Bob, the ringleader of um, a bunch of street kids. And that character, he is very much of um, the streets. He's a sort of counterweight 
in in the Shakespeare to all the royal intrigue that's going on, hanging out in taverns, drinking on other people's money, that kind of stuff. So in terms of that milieu, then it kind of completely makes sense that, that Van Sant would go um, with this kind of setting in his film. So I, I really enjoy this film for its surrealism, its humour, and really the p- two central performances from both of them. Um, Phoenix is something else in this, and you, you really can't keep your eyes off him uh, and, and his energy. He has a real energy um, to the film. So if you haven't seen it, I really thoroughly recommend checking it out. We may be hearing more about it later. Maybe <laughs> hearing more about it later. Okay. Eloise? Um, my number three is Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight, which is kind of a story about... Um, Falstaff and um, Prince Hal. Anyway, it's just uh, you know kind of about the two of them. I can't look. I can't remember much of it, so I don't know how much this is going to you know offer um, in my little intro spiel about this film. But I saw it at Film Forum a couple of years ago, and it had kind of just come back. I believe just mm. come back into circulation. Like Criterion Collection have since released it, but it was newly restored by Janus Films at the time, and so I saw this 4K at. Um, the Film Forum in New York with an intro by Beatrice Wells. Who oh, is, yeah, she's in it. Um, <laughs> is in it as yeah. a page boy, I think. Um, oh. And she brought along her original screenplay. Oh, cool. Um, which she passed around the audience and wow. I got to hold it. That's amazing. <laughs> it was pretty, a pretty exciting moment in my life. Um, anyway, it's, you know, I just remember it being, you know, it's funny. It's very Wellesian. He, I mean, he is, of course, in it um, and he is fantastic. He plays Falstaff, yeah? Yes. Yep. John Gielgud is in it. Jean Moreau is in it. You know, it's really incredibly shot. It's black and white. It's stunning. It's really worth seeing. Wells's Shakespeare films are just incredible. Uh, yeah, yeah. A terrific cast of actors here. And it was something that was, you know, dismissed at the time. And I think people mm. hated it. And then there was this huge rights battle with it, which is why it was so unseen for so long. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, cool. Again, we might be hearing more about that later. Oh. Um, <laughs> number three <laughs> is uh, My Empire of Idaho. Um, which I really love, but I haven't seen for a while. But the main thing I remember to add to every, I agree with everything you said, Anders, it is a very interesting film and Phoenix is pretty much impossible to stop looking at. Um, just the feeling of it is so strange. It's like it's a realistic, slow-moving black comedy as well as being an adaptation of Henry V partly, but then partly this beautiful story of unrequited love. Yeah, it takes in all these really interesting corners of the world. And I guess the, the that part of it actually works for me more than the Henry V where... William Richard, who plays the Falstaff style character, when he starts literally reading dialogue from Henry V, that sort of takes me a bit out of the naturalism because it, so much of it is just this beautiful surrealism about it, but then it also is just so grounded, like probably from the City of Night book that you mentioned. Is, um, it just makes it so engaging. Yeah, and it's such a eclectic mm, It is, a really, yeah, and it's full of all this striking imagery and then occasionally you'll just get... Uh, Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare like dump. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. And I, is there a term for, because um, it's, it's reminiscent weirdly of Requiem for a Dream. This like, I don't know, that tone, that semi-surreal, things happening very quickly, vignettes. I don't know. Mm. It seemed to be a trend in 90s films. I don't know if I'm just making this No, no, you're, up, it's true, you know, yeah. I don't know what Because, yeah, the way they were suddenly cut to these like, 
hustlers talking about their lives. Yes, and then suddenly... And then, yeah. It's, it's kind of like, like when Harry Met Sally, when it has those couples just talking about their lives, then you go back to the story again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, it's like a framing device, right? Mm. But it's just not a... You know, I feel bad now. Not a boring one, you know, with a journalist kind of interviewing someone. Yeah. <laughs> just to, you know, their story. It's just, you know, kind of like experimenting with. Yeah, I wonder why that suddenly dropped out of happening in movies. Yeah. Anyway. Well, yeah, that's my number three, unsurprisingly. Cool. Well, my number two is Tim Blake Nelson's O from 2001. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, so we would know Tim Blake Nelson as an actor from like every Coen Brothers movie. And um, he directed this adaptation of a fellow set around a high school basketball team. Uh, the aesthetic, both visually and orally, is very 2001, but it transcends all of that through its constant refocusing on racism. Like, really, it really centres the racism um, that a fellow experiences, I think, in very interesting ways. O- OJ, as his character is in the film, which um, it's probably a direct reference to OJ Simpson. Um it's um, also Josh Hartnett is in this and he's so freaking good in the Iago role. And it made, I rewatched it this week in preparation for this. And I thought, oh, remember Josh Hartnett? Like he really, he had something. I don't know, whatever. Um, since Ello is smiling widely <laughs> at this point. I know. What, what happened to him? Um, anyway, invented in this film is the motivation for Iago or Hugo uh, turning against O. And it's because his dad, played by Martin Sheen, is the basketball coach and he really loves O like his own son, as he explicitly says in, in front of the whole entire high school. So jealousy then becomes his motivation as well as, you know, O's fatal flaw. And so I think that's a very clever choice. And it turns this film into an interesting exploration of race, jealousy and the psychological effects of white patriarchy, which is quite heady material for a teen film. Yeah, especially then. Yes. Yeah, cool. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I, I reckon it's a great film. Worth rewatching if maybe you watched it once in high school uh, English and forgot about it. I, as I did, I thoroughly recommend rewatching. My number two is pretty much a straight adaptation, but it is from 1935 and does have Olivia de Havilland in it. So I feel like I'm allowed to put this one um, <laughs> what on the list. What would our top three be about <laughs> a pre-1940s film? Exactly. It's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a play that I was extremely obsessed with as a maybe 15 and 16-year-old for whatever reason, you know. I mean, it's fantastic and it's so much fun. It's two and a half hours um, in an early sound era. So, you know, that might sound kind of long and arduous but it's essentially a very specific kind of filming of the play um, with big epic scale dance sequences and kind of fantasy ballets and everything Um, it's Warner Brothers so you know a lot of money and they had a lot of kind of big set pieces of this kind James Cagney is in it Mickey Rooney Dick Powell which is very very strange they must have all been so young well, it was Olivia de Havilland's film debut, right. apparently. Oh. Directed or directed by Max Reinhardt and William Dieterle, who is a you know made a, some fantastic films, really um, kind of hard films as well, some quite violent things um, and some big dramas. So to see them doing this kind of you know light comedy is lots of fun. It is you know quite available. It's on a couple of streaming services and maybe also elsewhere. But this is such a timepiece 
these movies that are, are so specific in time and then also kind of trying to do something that a lot of people maybe wouldn't have been able to do to go to the theater and to see things of this scale and that you know to have something with this bigger cast kind of traveling around America you know would have been impossible and so that's you know one of the reasons I think to kind of appreciate these things Mm -hmm. um, these particular kind of adaptations um, my number two is a 2006 adaptation of Twelfth Night, in, which is the movie She's the Man. <gasps> this is one of my honourable mentions, <laughs> really? Andy. Yes, um, I great re- film. I rewatched it a few nights ago, and it was even better than I remembered. And <laughs> even though it's like, it feels like it would be made very differently in 2019. Um, so essentially, <laughs> the story is Amanda Bynes extremely engagingly plays this girl who's very good at soccer called Viola. Her twin brother, Sebastian's um, indie band, goes really well and he has to disappear to London for two weeks to play a festival. So she decides to dress up as him and go to Illyria High, which is the high school. Illyria High. Yeah. Once there, she dresses up as Sebastian and tries to pass as him and joins the boys' soccer team, whose uh, coach is played by Vinnie Jones, in the one note that Vinnie Jones plays in any character ever, which is perfect. (laughs) She's got a roommate who's Channing Tatum in pretty much his debut role. She instantly falls for, but then he gets her slash his help for, to hook up with Olivia, who he's got a crush on, who has got a crush on, Sebastian. It, it, it's, it's just beautiful. Um, so you've got to scratch <laughs> me that um, Amanda Bynes is extremely un- unconvincing as a boy because every single time she talks, she's always starts talking in a natural voice, then coughs, then starts talking in a voice that's like, <clears throat> uh, this is uh, Viola's mum, she won't be coming to school today. Sort just of like- so we're not tricked, but... Yeah. So we that so we know she's working really hard. Yeah. at her disguise. Yeah, it's exactly. like you go along with it. It's impossible not to be swept along with this, which is why I'm always surprised when I look at the ratings on Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb on this. Anyway, Julie Haggerty plays her mother, and all throughout this, she's trying to get her daughter to be a debutante at this debutante ball, and she's got like, she's got a fairly thinly drawn character, but she still has amazing lines like "Viola, darling, chew like you have a secret." <laughs> <laughs> this sort of stuff where she's just trying to stop her from being such well, a tomboy. Oh man! Anyway, it's it's full of quotable quotes and it's got a quite predictable um, storyline, but it's so engaging, it's so much fun that I have to recommend she's the man. Yes, and I do remember having a big crush on Channing Tatum. Mm, yeah, he's quite winning. Okay, my number one is, and I do apologise because it's not zany choice at all. <laughs> it is the very conventionally made but amazing. Uh, Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet <laughs> yeah. from 1968, um, which is a really lavish and emotional production. And I used to have the biggest teenage crush on, God, this is a recurrent theme of my Shakespeare, favourite Shakespeare, <laughs> um, on I, Leonard Whiting, his name Oh, is? yes. Yeah, uh, he's a teenager favorite. who plays Romeo in this. Like, yeah. notably, um, Zeffirelli casts, like, real teenagers in these roles. He made his whole career, I just learned that he died only a few months ago, um, off the bat of uh, quite a few very sort of lavish, uh, classic, I guess, traditional Harold Bloom-approved Shakespeare adaptations. <laughs> but this has resonated the strongest for me from high school English to now, which is why I wanted to include it. And I think part of the effect is because of that casting. Because they're so young, they speak of their rom- romance almost in terms that they can't quite comprehend. And I think that is kind of a great way of dealing with love as a subject matter. Forget the Shakespeare poetry for a second, but 
Uh, it's the the centering of this overall sensation of getting caught up in a torrent that you can't even really begin to control. And that's such a powerful mood that I think Zeffirelli really perfectly captures and enacts. And that's why it is my favourite Shakespeare adaptation. It's really stayed with me since... I've, oh, I watched it a couple of years ago, actually. Mm, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Really strong depth of feeling. Yeah, so beautifully so, shot. So true. I'm just going to take an aside and say well, something I thought about The King was that, I mean, all of the actors were quite young, you know, and that was quite stunning because we were meant, you know, these people were forced into these positions of royalty and responsibility at an age where they couldn't quite comprehend it. And the sister, um, what was her name? Philippa, maybe? Yeah, Philippa. Um, yeah. Um, played by Thomas and Mackenzie, New Zealand's own. What well, a year she's having. Anyway, yeah, I know, great. But she was very young and very softly spoken, but did speak these kind of wise words. Yeah. I yeah. thought, you know, she is kind of forced into this position that she, I, I appreciated very much that they were looked young, but yeah, it didn't just didn't quite fit with what they were saying. But, mm. but this Zeffirelli adaptation really does own that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, um, Olivia yeah. Hussey, amazing. Yes, yeah, just and it's so lavish. and so active on Twitter too. She's great. She's oh, a, is she? she's worth a follow. Yeah. Oh, okay. I will definitely. She did a throwback Thursday with some scenes like shots of from this Romeo and Juliet oh, last oh. Thursday. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, my number one is something that I <laughs> bagged as soon <laughs> to the bagged to Andy and Anders as soon as we decided on this topic, yes. <laughs> um, which is, I mean, how could we not mention this? The best film of our teenage years, uh, the best teen film of our teenage years, 10 Things I Had About You. <laughs> yes, um, top five. I'm so glad that I was a, te- like, was a teenager when this came out, I think is what I'm trying to say. I feel very lucky to have lived through this. Directed by Jill Junger. It's an adaptation of Taming of the Shrew, set in a high school. Padua High is essentially what it's called because it's, it's meant to be cool. in Padua. You know, one of the greatest soundtracks of the time. Um, I remember this was still the period where Heath Ledger was still an Australian. I mean, he was always Australian, but it was an Australian-based actor. And mm. then he just kind of moved to the US and he had a weird accent and they explained it away that he maybe lived in Australia for a bit and then moved around because either they wanted him to keep the Aussie accent or he didn't want to do an American one yeah. even though you know so he was in this American high school and Julia Stiles mentioning her again is in the lead yes. role um, so she is you know assigned to be wooed she is the unwooable and she is assigned to be wooed by Heath Ledger sorry I, I forgot to mention I'm pretty sure she's in O she's, she's in O as well Yes, she right. She really did make a career out of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was also struck by how much Lily Rose Depp looked like yeah. Julia Stiles. Yeah, good call. In The King, which is a nice way to tie that in. I mean, what can you say about this film? It pokes fun at this whole very American idealization of the high school setup, you know, all of the different social groups and things at the beginning. Larissa Olenek is in it, who is, you know, Alex Mack. It's just an incredibly like. <laughs> So well marketed to mm. our teen cells in and JGL, early, hmm? um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, early. Oh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, early Joseph Gordon-Levitt, yeah. where he's a huge Dorcas. Um, <laughs> so good at being a Dorcas. <laughs> so good. Alison Janney. Oh, yeah. In, yes, writing a, a yep. sex novel. Writing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mills and Boone stuff. <laughs> um, it's a teen movie about all of these teens who are negotiating 
you know, their coming of age kind of, you know, moment in their lives. And every single adult, it's not that adults are absent, which is a kind of a trope or not a trope, but an, a thing that I've noticed a lot of teen films doing these days is just making adults completely absent from mm, yeah. the plot or from the focus. But the, all of the adults here are just bumbling idiots, essentially. And that is even more hilarious. So, you know, it's completely designed to just get teens on side mm. and teens and, you know, young adults slash adults who maybe should know better by this point. But anyway, <laughs> it's just fantastic. And I don't even know how many times I've watched this film. And just how great is Giles' character's um, proto-feminism? Like, I just love that about the film. Yeah, probably had a lot to do with, you know, my formation as a teen girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend Kate said the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Rad. Where is the Prince of Wales? We do not know, my lord. Choir at London, amongst the taverns. For there they say he daily does frequent unrestrained loose companions. Oh, bastard, son of the king. <laughs> that villainous, abominable misleader of youth. <laughs> Sweet Jack Falstaff, Kai Jack Falstaff, true Jack Falstaff, valiant Jack Falstaff. My number one is also Times at Midnight. Um, which I rewatched a couple of days ago and they did a bunch of research. Cause I is it been... one of your many criterions? Uh, no, no, sadly. Um, not yet, but it may well be because I really, really liked it. Um, and it reminded me of all the things, a lot of the things that were lacking in The King, particularly um, uh, Orson Welles' performance. And he's just, he, uh, there's so much comedy. There's so much physical comedy in this. There's so many jokes about him making jokes about his own physique. The um, whole suit of armour thing is kind of hilarious. Uh, the fact that during the Battle of Agincourt he just hides behind a bush <laughs> instead of having the story run the same way that it does uh, in The King. Um, it's just – and the language is so good. <laughs> There's some just great gags and it's aged so well. I didn't expect it to be quite as funny as it was. And the way that uh, Falstaff just kind of becomes a bystander as all these sorts of big political machinations and raging changes happen and things like that, and it's just a very, very interesting, very smart way. Can you just feel the love for the text? You feel like he and the, the, the thorough knowledge that he clearly has of these books and these plays, and he's—I mean—he did take a lot of the people who were performing in the theatre production that he made of *The Times at Midnight* and put them in, on, in the screen, which I think is partly also That's why it true. works so well. That's the pleasure of it, isn't it? That love of the text and mm. the knowledge of the text. Yeah, that—that that is, you know, if you're going to kind of draw on that wealth of history and art, then you have to have that and honour that. Mm. Yeah, and like you were saying about Othello, the cinematography is just so amazing. Like, there's a, it's like a total disregard of straight lines. Like, it feels like somebody who's never studied cinema ever. Like, every angle is canted slightly, but it's always there for a reason. It's always, mm. and then it'll suddenly cut right between a close up of Wells's face taking up three quarters of the screen with his beard over the top of his armor and his, you know, huge jowls and that sort of thing. And then it'll cut back to some a tiny figure in a landscape. I mean, the story behind the production of this is fascinating as well about shooting it in Spain and having to get all this money from all these places and being ignored by Hollywood. But, you know, he said it was his favorite film that he'd made. Mm. And it's kind of easy to see why because it's just so much fun. Um, and yeah, I would re- definitely recommend trying to be not. Now I need to see Othello after what you were saying. Yeah. Um, honorable mentions? Well, I've already mentioned and you mentioned She's the Man uh, and 10 Things I Had About You. And Othello. So um, I covered all bases, except for I did want to mention Justin Kurzel's Macbeth because mm. I think it's a really visceral take on that play. I watched it, I think I was quite hungover at the time and it was very unpleasant, but in a good way. 
in a in a in a resonant way, I'll say. So yeah, and just very strikingly shot. I have two that I want to honourable mention. Only one of them I'm doing, I guess, honestly. The other <laughs> is Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing from 1993, which I remember watching in maybe year eight or something, English class. Remember when you just watched a movie for no reason in particular in school? Anyway, <laughs> yes. it is – I it's look, it's probably quite good. I was trying to read about it and I think it's had some good reviews. Branagh is in it as Benedict and Emma Thompson as Beatrice. But what is hilarious about it that I remember the most – is Keanu yes, I was gonna say Keanu. as Don John because I just remember him being so awful, like the most wooden actor I'd seen on screen at that point in my life and maybe still. And <laughs> I'm just thinking, I mean, you know, now there's this big uh, Keanu Reeves love in that we're all having. I mean, he's very, you know, he's doing really wonderful things and he has had a fantastic career and he's gorgeous. But you just think... I, do, I don't think he's a particularly good actor in certain roles. <laughs> yeah. And why would you choose Shakespeare of all things if you were not a good actor? This is the reason why I'm kind of in jest recommending Much Ado About Nothing. <laughs> Hilarious. You've seen it, Anders. Yes, and I, exact same circumstances would have been about year eight. Yep. T- wet weather day or something instead of playing PE we would have watched it yeah yeah, yeah. well um, yeah it's interesting like because uh, Dangerous Liaisons I think he was in a year or two earlier and oh a, I can't remember to very that. similar experiences sure. it's like everybody's amazing and then he'll just walk in and it's like what are you doing here go back <laughs> to California I did forget oh, to mention yeah. when we were talking about my empire of Idaho that it is screening on October 25th at the Lido as part of its Keanu Reeves-a-thon oh Amazing. Yes, and neither of Dangerous Liaisons or Much Ado About Nothing is turning up in the Reeves-a-thon because there's such a wealth of films to you can. We will have our own festival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, my second is not a surprise to anyone else who knows how much I love the 90s. It's Raz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Like, it's it's just so good. And, I, you know, in terms of the screenplay, it's a direct adaptation of the text, but it's obviously updated in terms of time and, and location. It just has – I feel like it's so hard to get a straight adaptation right of Shakespeare – and this, because everything else it does is just kind of like blown out of the park. It's just so over the top in every single other way that it works so well. Mm. Um, and, of course, I love that framing device at the end that it shifts it to a television screen rather than, you know, a narrator. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just fantastic. It means so much to me mm-hmm. as a film. Brilliant, yeah. Um, I have to mention uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, the 70 mil that turns up at the Astor every six oh, months or so. Oh, I saw that. It's incredible. A few years ago. Yep. Yeah, that's, yeah, it feels peerless. But no, I haven't mentioned Akira Kurosawa's Ran or Throne of Blood, which should get mentioned. I also watched Get Over It, this nine, yet another 2000 era. I think that's the one I saw. We were having a conversation about we were. Is that Get the one it. that I saw? It, it, a term that never turns up during mm. the film. Um, Get Over It is like they're putting on a version of Midsummer Night's Dream, but it's happening around them as well. Yes, I have seen that one. It's kind of wild. Yeah. Um, Martin Short is an incredible, uh, incredibly cheesy. Kirsten Dunst? Uh, yeah, early, very early yeah, Kirsten. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway, there's just so much to go through. I mean, we haven't even mentioned Laurence Olivier's Henry V, which I watched recently, and that's incredible as well. And that has a very, very totally different, like, um, Battle of Agincourt, where he's yep. obviously talking about the Hitler threat mm-hmm. that was happening around the time, and the whole film was made, funded by the British government wow. to be able to inspire patriotism wow. in the people who came to watch it, and it was a massive hit yep. on Oscars. Uh, and, yeah, and then it's interesting because, you know, Chimes at Midnight was coming out as the Vietnam War was happening, and so there was all this sort of mm. vibe to it. Well, my Midsummer Night's Dream in 1935 was banned in Germany because Max Reinhardt was a Jew. Oh, yeah, right. Um, 
and maybe some of the actors as well. So anyway, all sorts of interesting. Inseparable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, we, we better not go without not mentioning The Lion King. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Let's, can we just clarify the uh, the nineties? Yeah, the nineties. <laughs> no, yes, exactly. Clara, clarification: the original. Um, and I'm not going to mention Shakespeare in Love because it's a dull film. It's so dull. Yeah, it's kind of a low point for the Oscars there. <laughs> and on that note, anyway, that <laughs> brings us to the end of episode sixty-six of Cultural Capital. Thank you very much for listening. Please rate and review and subscribe. We love all those things. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cold Cap Pod. And we, and we think, think you're great. great.